This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hey everyone, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. This week, I had the pleasure of returning to Robert Aronowitz's Risky Medicine, Our Quest to Cure Fear and Uncertainty, published in 2015 by the University of Chicago Press. Aronowitz, professor of history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania, has practiced medicine for many years, and this sensibility informs his well-argued and clearly written account of the historical transformation of risk in American and global medicine. A series of case studies comprise the core of the book, focused on the creation and global marketing of new vaccines, the history of the foundational Framingham Heart Study, and a discussion of cancer survivorship. The book is framed with introductory essays that address what he calls the converged experience of risk and disease, and the evaluation of public health interventions as efficacious because they reduce risk and do social and psychological work. 
A third main aspect of risky medicine addressed by the book is that there has been a market-driven expansion of risk interventions, and the end of the book takes policymakers to task on effectively regulating what creates an increasingly complex risk system in the clinic and out. Though Robbie and I didn't manage to cover the full scope of this fascinating book in our discussion, it was a pleasure to speak with him, and I hope that you will go out and read the book yourselves. I strongly recommend this book to those interested in the intersection between medicine and social science, or for anyone curious about how the history of medicine can speak to contemporary issues. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. I'm here today with Robbie Aronowitz, professor of the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. Robbie, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Thank you. So uh, just to get us started, um, I know that you trained as a physician yourself, and I'm interested in your trajectory into the field of history of science and medicine, and also what led you to write the book at hand. Okay, well, I've had a a zigzagging career uh, overall. I was an English literature major in college. I had an aborted career in linguistics, um, which um, sometimes I think uh, was just a, you know a, a chapter in my life that has no relevance to what I do now. But increasingly, I think it, it's um, opened up uh, new areas of inquiry and a way of thinking about classification of disease mm. that that's relevant to my work and relevant to this book in particular. Yeah, it does come um, up once your social linguistic example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, but uh, my now wife of thirty-five years met me when I was interested in language and brain and convinced me to go to medical school, that it would be a more fruitful career. And um, and for a while, I thought I would be um, a specialist in, in, in sort of language and brain issues. But specialization seemed very ghoulish once I got to medical training. And um, uh, I started a career in ter- as an internist uh, doing internal medicine, but with a history, with an interest in um, disease and the history of disease. And so for the, for quite a bit of time, almost a decade, I worked as a primary care physician in Camden, New Jersey, with the history of science and medicine as sort of background to my life. You know, I, I, I wrote my first book. It's not like I was not doing history and sociology of science, but it wasn't the main squeeze. Mm-hmm. Um, and then around, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago, I had the opportunity to come to Penn to... Um, mostly to start an undergraduate program, which is now Health and Societies, but personally allowed me to sort of switch background and foreground. Uh, all of a sudden, the history of medicine, history of science was, was foreground, not something I did in the margins of my life. Mm. And, that's, and that's made all the difference. Um, and um, it's hard to say the genesis of the book. I've been interested in, in risky medicine, which we can talk about what that means, for the longest time. It comes out of I, I often tell students that almost everything I've ever written uh, about uh, from a historical perspective came out of clinical experiences, in particular experiences that pissed me off um, <laughs> in a way. So I've been dealing with the the paradoxes and ironies of what we'll, t- we'll discuss soon, risk-centered medicine, almost from the beginning of my medical training. Um, but in a more scholarly vein, I um, ended my uh, well, I had once thought I was going to write a book about the history of cardiovascular disease, and I ended up doing a lot of research in the early years of the Framingham study and um, 
some aspects of, of coronary artery disease. Some of that work ended up in my first book, but I had a um, lingering interest in doing a historical approach to risk in medicine, even, even then. And then my breast cancer book, if you've looked at it, that ends the last chapter in a kind of brave new world of breast cancer risk, where, um, you know, women, uh, you know, are told that they have uh, a one in eight chance, a one in seven chance of developing breast cancer in their lifetime. Men are often told they have a one in six chance of developing prostate cancer in their lifetime. And uh, this, this, this risk, which, uh, you know, we'll talk about later, is, is not simply a kind of abstract probability, but it's, it's can structure people's lives. Mm-hmm. and becomes a kind of experience, um, and uh, was something I ended my breast cancer book with. And I kind of knew that, you know, I wanted to t- take this on not simply in cancer um, and not simply uh, in the context of screening and the medicalization of probabilities into risk, but to see this as a whole system with many different entanglements. And that, I felt, deserved um, a book-length treatment. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, um, and, and some of the things in the book, I, I worked as case studies that appeared on their own in, in different um, health policy and history journals. But um, I, I kind of always knew I wanted to weave it into a, a more coherent narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to kind of get into the book and its structure, I was wondering if before we actually define what you know, risky medicine is and how you kind of uh, spell it out in the book uh, – where and when is risky medicine specifically? Because uh, I think that, you know, you focus a lot on the U.S. context, but then right. you also call out the extent to which uh, risky medicine is also involving, um, you know, other countries that are subject to the right. same kinds of pharmaceutical regimes. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the where and when question. I mean, you know, I, I do have a chapter in the book on the globalized risk system. And um, this for me, largely came out of my interest. Uh, you know, I co-edited a, a volume with um, Steve Epstein, Keith Waylou, and Julie Livingston on, on um, they used the HPV vaccine and the controversies around it as a kind of dipstick into a set of problems in contemporary medicine. And it was in that um, project that I got interested in the what might be called the global circulation of risk, mm-hmm. because... Uh, you have the development of a vaccine. I, I know I'll get to the to the to the what uh, the when question uh, in a second. But you know it, it was very clear in that the HPV vaccine was a product, and we can return to this: whose architecture, whose cost, whose uh, market niche, whose efficacy was made for uh, for risk reduction in the westernized, in, you know, in affluent countries where there already were uh, means of preventing cervical cancer. Um, but the product itself, obviously, or the a vaccine against cancer was much more useful um, and needed in places where cervical cancer is the leading cause of cancer death, not, you know, the 10th, like, or whatever it is in the, in most Western countries. So, but yet the product in some sense is not, is not the right product for that, for those places. So, uh, you know, yes, I, it is a globalized story. That is the kind of answer to the where question, uh, but it's an interactive one with a lot of ironies, paradoxes, and, and troubling uh, interconnections. The what question is difficult in some ways. I mean, I began my breast cancer book with the early 19th century with a, a woman who um, was a Philadelphia woman diagnosed with 
cancer in the breast, as it was called. And a lot of her decision-making and life experience was shaped by the worry and fear of what was of anticipation of what was going to happen in the future. You know, so in some level, there's a kind of um, difficult, difficult periodization mm-hmm. around the, the risk system where, uh, you know, however, you know, and, and it's a difficult thing to actually, and we should get around to what I mean by, by the, by, by the <laughs> by risky medicine, but it's a difficult thing to draw a kind of narrow circle around. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a very, you know, impermeable boundary because fear of disease, anticipation of outcome, management of, you know, in some sense, traditional therapeutics had everything to do with the management of, you know, one's body through the life course with a sense that one, you know, one was always taking on and shedding something like risk. Of course, the term was never used. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I do mean to talk about a very, um, very much a kind of 20th century, even a post-World War II story. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's what I concentrate in my case studies. That's you know, and when we get to the definition of risky medicine, I think it'll become apparent why that is. But there are there are ways in which, and this is and this is very tricky even for me, who's thought about this for a long time, to to delineate you know precisely and with much conviction, you know, uh, a world there's there's oh you know in some sense it goes all the way down uh, mm-hmm. at some level because it's a story of fear, it's a story of uncertainty, it's a story of somehow the personal and medical and you know and and public health and policy efforts to somehow contain and control the future. Mm-hmm. And so now that I've made you kind of work around yeah. <laughs> the definition itself, how, how do you define risky medicine? What is its scope and what does it consist in? I mean, first I have to tell you the title is, you know, uh, is something of a, uh, a pun uh, or at least double meaning where um, I'm mostly interested in, 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 in explaining and looking at the implications of what might be called a risk-centered medicine, mm-hmm. or risk-obsessed medicine, risk-focused fo- risk medicine, but there are elements. You know, I, I don't come to this neutrally. I am a physician, and I live in the world, and I have a point of view, uh, and I am concerned about uh, uh, excess um, um, uh, harm to people. Uh, who, who who seek out certain types of risk interventions? I'm concerned about the sort of some almost Foucauldian implications of surveillance and discipline that come with this. So the risky in the title is meant as a secondary way to suggest danger, uh, you know, and harm uh, around it. And um, uh, the subtitle is supposed to neutralize it. I don't know how effective that is. The subtitle for those of you who don't have the book in, in your hands is "Our Quest to Cure Fear and Uncertainty." A uh, subtitle provided to me by my daughter, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, risk, risk-centered medicine. Um, uh, what I mean by that is a kind of um, portmanteau of a couple of different developments. And this is where the periodization becomes a little bit more precise, because most of these things are, are post-World War II developments. And, and one of these things is a um, m- largely market-driven um, expansion of medical uh, diagnostic and therapeutics into earlier and earlier stages of diseases in order to develop uh, practices and products that um, have um, tremendous market value. And, and I guess one way to think about this, and I'm not the only one, you know, many many people lately, probably all coincidentally around the same time, 10 or 15 years ago, started pointing this out, uh, that 
for example, in the pharmaceutical industry, um, while drugs like antibiotics uh, are, um, you know, efficacious drugs, they have the ironic property of exhausting their demand. That is, you know, if, mm -hmm. if antibiotics work, you take them for a week or two weeks or three weeks, you know, in, in, in at least oral antibiotics for most common infections, and uh, hopefully you get better <laughs> and don't need them anymore, <laughs> you know. Uh, that's not a great business model. Um, uh, and uh, drugs, on the other hand, that are there to reduce risk, uh, since, you know, risk, at a, you know, defined statistically as some probability of getting something, uh, is a property that can be applied, depending on how low you want to go in your probability, to an entire pop population. Mm -hmm. And if the drug is effective at reducing risk, it might be something that you need to take for your lifetime. Now, that's a bonanza, uh, you know, at the level of, of market rewards. And that's, that's one of the three elements of, 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 of what I mean by risky medicine. The other, another one is something I tackled in, in one of the early essays, but it appears in a lot of the case studies, and I return to it in the conclusion, is the way in which, you know, in the older idea of risk, it was, you know, people, sociologists, you know, might have, you know, even when they – when I, I once wrote something for social science and medicine where, you know, a couple of critic, you know, uh, reviewers basically said, oh, you're just talking about medicalization. You're talking mm -hmm. about identifying, um, you know, uh, difference in behavior, in, 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 you know, physiological status, and then putting a name to it, calling it a disease, labeling deviance, et cetera. Right. But, but what I'm talking about risky medicine is, is, is not that, I mean, it includes that, but the large, um, the leading salient of which I'm most interested in exploring and which I pick up in my, uh, you know, in that second chapter, but also in, in the cancer and uh, the chapter on survivorship is the way in which risk is not just sort of the medicalization of the healthy or labeling of deviance, but it, it, it's, it's actually what a lot of uh, everyday clinical medicine is about. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and my, 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 my phrase for this is the convergence of risk and disease mm -hmm. that so much of medical intervention, treatment and diagnostics even when it's about, you know, no one would argue that, you know, different types of cancers are some kind of medicalization of, of, of difference. You know, you know, these are, you know, real pathological processes, you know, and I want to get into, you know, reals, maybe in quotes, I don't want to get into a realist novel <laughs> here about it. But, you know, these are bona fide diseases, which, you know, most people get up and, you know, and run to a physician uh, for if they're experiencing one of these things. Nevertheless, the management and experience of, of their diseases, often one of managing future anticipated consequences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, people take Alzheimer drugs, uh, you know, their families at least make the decision because they're often not in a position of competency to decide about them, not because they expect to get better, uh, uh, but because someone imagines or there's data to show or arguments are made in advertisements in medical <laughs> detail men that the trajectory of the disease will be less bad than some than the trajectory you wouldn't have had if you didn't have to take the drug <laughs> in a way right. uh, a lot of drugs for rheumatoid arthritis are disease stabilizing drugs they're not really there to make the symptoms that you feel at the moment any better like a painkiller there's an there's a there's an expectation that these drugs will modify the expected course of the disease in a more favorable way mm-hmm um, and, you know, in the in the book, in many different examples, and then I talk about even things like the cancer survivorship state, which, you know, is in some sense a, 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 a kind of confluence of both risk and, and, and disease that's about the management of 
of future things. So I'm uh, the risk system and the risky medicine, you know, the second major theme is this convergence and the way in which risk has, has interwoven itself into the everyday life of, 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 uh, of, of medicine. And I think it's, uh, you know, we can talk about it, but I think it's, it's done so without a lot of awareness and um, without understanding the full implications of it. And, 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 and I, like, like a lot of things in this book, it's not like I'm against it or for it. I mean, these are almost overdetermined trends, right. <laughs> many implications. But I think understanding it and understanding where our degrees of freedom are in terms of responding to it are really important. Mm-hmm. That's a big – and getting back to your first question, that's really a reason I wrote the book, to sort of point out those right. – you know, the book is both history, but it's also a little world according to me that's <laughs> trying to, um, you know, say something about the world we live in and and what and what options we have for responding to it. Anyway, the right, right. the, um, the um, uh, you know the, those are two elements of of um, of you know of of um, the risk the risk system. You know, the convergence. And this kind of market expansion of of um, of of medicine, and the third element I'm sort of blocking on at this moment. Uh, uh, I'm looking looking in my book for a second to get it. It's, it's sort of right before me. Um, Efficacy is is yes is um, is the way in which uh, the um, so much of our modern uh, interventions have the efficacy of, of risk reduction. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I explore that in a whole, in a chapter in the book, but of course it's interwoven in almost every example that I, that I talk about. And what I mean by that, and I guess, um, uh, it, you know, one way, you know, for historians out there who are listening uh, is that, you know, a very influential uh, essay by my teacher and mentor and good friend, Charles Rosenberg, written around the time of the bicentennial uh, was called the therapeutic revolution, and many people have you know used this as a touchstone for thinking about modern medicine. But uh, the book begins with uh, the pre-revolution time, the traditional therapeutics, and one of the things Rosenberg does so well uh, in that essay is uh, explain, you know, in in many ways, therapeutics prior to the modern era was, uh, you know, something ignored by medical historians, especially. I mean, not. Uh, especially, you know, people, physician historians who were ashamed, you know, of bleeding and purging and traditional therapeutics. They might laud Harvey's system of discovery of the circulation or whatever, but therapeutics was an embarrassment in a way. Mm-hmm. And historians in some ways, you know, might explain it um, without getting into the details of it <laughs> by talking of it, you know, as a kind of, uh, you know, all, you know, all the irregular practitioners in the 19th century in the crowded medical marketplace and, you know, in, in social terms, but they ignored in some sense, the actual material practices of therapeutics. It's similar to the way physicians ignored it, maybe for different reasons, not necessarily out of shame, but they didn't quite get it. And what, what Rosenberg did in that essay was explain that there was a kind of therapeutic system. And if you have a body metaphor uh, that uh, the things of health and the body as um, in humoral terms and taking taking on and discharging humors, uh, then therapeutics that bled you and you know cause you to puke and, and 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 have diarrhea, that stuff made a lot of sense to both physician and patient because people were seeing visible evidence that stuff was working. 
because, uh, you know, uh, you had uh, the blood in the cup, you know, or in the leech. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, that was a kind of down payment connected to a certain body metaphor that uh, showed that there was a system that, that was working. And I, when I talk about the risk system, I'm very much thinking about Rosenberg's and using um, underlying idea that in any, in any era, you know, even though undoubtedly modern therapeutics is really, and I'm in quotes, scare quotes here, efficacious in a way that bleeding and purging, you know, are not, you know, I, uh, uh, I'm, you know, I, as I told you, I was a practicing internist and, uh, you know, believe in the, in, in, in the power of a lot of uh, modern medicine and efficacy is the power to have an effect. But nevertheless, um, why we, how we understand efficacy is not, you know, we're not all little clinical trialists uh, computing randomized controlled trials of different arms of the decision tree every moment. <laughs> we, have, we have a therapeutic system that we live in, and a lot of it is, I argue in the book, something of a risk-based therapeutic system. And what I mean by that is, um, uh, in a way, we have a body metaphor today, and, and in some sense, a definition of health. That involves the lowering of risk or, 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 or harm and ill health is the, is the acquisition of risk in some levels. You know, uh, I used to, patients used to come to me uh, or friends would tell me, you know, they're doing pretty well. They feel very healthy. They're exercising. Their cholesterol is low. Their blood pressure is finally controlled. They're, you know, they went to a doctor and all the tests were normal. And there's a kind of conflation there of health with the reduction of risk, you know, mm-hmm. how circular, circular it is. In some sense, reducing risk is health. That's what I mean by the body metaphor. And like the 19th century patient and doctor, uh, people are empiricists. They demand evidence that the system, uh, you know, that therapeutics work in some ways. And I pay a lot of attention to what, what, what the witnessed evidence, what the analog to bleeding and purging is in the risk system. And I think we've developed a whole series of things, uh, blood tests that show you, you know, that your cholesterol was 250 and now it's 150 after taking a medicine, blood pressure readings that show blood pressure going from 240 to 120, um, bone densometries that show on, after taking uh, a medicine to reduce osteoporosis, your bone density has gotten better, screening tests of thousands of sorts. Um, you know, there's a whole series and, and, you know, this is also related to medical knowledge production because we, we don't often the clinical evidence for things being efficacious is also halfway points of some sort or some kind of, uh, intermediate points because the things we really care about, which is living longer without suffering are very difficult to measure and often take a lot of time. Right. uh, Right. Happen. So anyway, analogous to that, to that, um, therapeutic revolution period, we have a system with a series of Endpoints and also props, you know, risks that have been fashioned as diseases. This is where the medicalization literature does come in, where there's a kind of elision of, you know, probability of something bad happening with something like the disease concept, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is part of this whole thing. But anyway, you know, I do, you know, imagine I often in teaching evoke some Martian who arrives on our planet, and, and, and I ask the students to think about what knowledge the Martian has to have about the world we inhabit to make sense of different phenomena. You know, and this Martian arrives in a motel room and, you know, turns on the TV and, you know, there's these commercials that, 
you know, combination of like stuff that puts you at risk of disease, like fatty foods and, and, you know, stuff like that. And then all these weight loss programs and gyms and other things that are risk reducing. And, you know, the Martian is crazy. What is this world we live in where there's all this stuff is like marketed to produce risk and things are sold, you know, almost an economy of non-consumption about reducing, you know, Mm -hmm. weight calories in a way. And this only makes sense within a risk system, I think. And it may very well be, you know, that, um, you know, people 200 years from now where the Martian I just invoked looks upon our pres- a lot of aspects of our present therapeutics the way we look, we look upon bleeding and purging, you know, and wonder why did otherwise intelligent people do this mm-hmm. uh, at some level? But I don't think people were unintelligent in the early 19th century nor today. There's a body metaphor. There's witnessed evidence. We're empiricists then and now. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, just one has to wrap your hands around a certain entire system of risk reduction at the efficacy of risk reduction, the third point, which I couldn't remember a second ago, <laughs> uh, you know, that to, 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 um, to make sense of it all. Mm-hmm. And one thing that kind of resonated a lot for me that unites a lot of the different threads of this is an observation you make in the book that uh, in a way, uh, these kind of risk categories and risk factors allow for the placing of uh, patients into categories much, much, much more cleanly than actual like symptomatic disease, right? right. So going beyond medicalization, um, what risk factors allow is a much, much, much more standardized way of uh, like kind of regulating uh, the self regimes of patients and otherwise. And actually with that, I wanted to transition to... Uh, yeah, before, you... before you transition, oh, I, no. I just want to like <laughs> li- li- literally, literally, when I you said where where did this book come from? You know, when um, uh, regulators want to make sure that you know people are practicing high quality medicine, what they use as indicators are these are, are basically your compliance with various risk regimes. Do, do you tell your patients uh, who have diabetes? You know, uh, do you get certain blood tests on them? How, how often are you screening your average patient uh, for cholesterol? Are you following the guidelines for this or that? And it's almost entirely the world of risk reduction where this surveillance and regulation comes in. Now, that's right. you know a relatively mundane example of where of where of where things work. So anyway, I interrupted your thought, but I just wanted to, you know I wanted to sort of emphasize both the connection to practice and the fact that. You know, this is, you know, not an abstract argument. This is Absolutely. About how everyday medicine works. Anyway, go on, go on. Mike. Right, right. And it's, it, kind of, it has become this regime of yes. evaluation. Right. But right. as you as you yourself point out so well so many times throughout the book, uh, this was not necessarily an inevitable development. And I wanted yes. to turn to what you sort of pinned down as the origins, at least like linguistically or right. uh, etymologically, as the uh, yeah. the origin of risk factors in the Framingham Heart right. Study. So could right. you unpack for us the study and where you think it kind of serves as like an entry point into your story about risk in American medicine? Yeah. First thing I'll say, just in terms of like the question of like cause and effect or agency, you know, the Framingham study is widely acknowledged as a very important study for uh, the emergence of something like, you know, cardiovascular screening, but often in medicine uh, for risk factor identification and intervention overall. Having said that, you know, there were many other studies around the same time of the Framingham study (laughs) that came out. And uh, in that article, uh, I also try to point out how some of these 
things that were in the ether, uh, social factors and economic uh, aspects of American medicine and political and social developments were shaping the Framingham study, even as it itself has had a profound influence, I think, on the course of medicine uh, itself. So I, I, I want to see the arrows going both ways. Mm-hmm. You, know, uh, you know, it's an obvious historical point known to you, but, you know, uh, sometimes there's a, you know, a kind of history that's told that sees, uh, you know, sort of the discovery of risk factors as a kind of, uh, you know, Columbus discovering America kind <laughs> of story, you know, uh, even though that one's ironic, uh, you know, in many ways, and, and it's not. Okay, so um, what what I, by telling a, a more deep, I, I had the pleasure of um, interviewing, just like you're interviewing me, the the um, original investigators of the Framingham study, especially Ray Dorber, uh, uh, before they died, you know, along you know quite a quite a while ago, and um, and I was very interested in the texture of their um, decision making in terms of the ultimate structure of this of the study. And um, and how it uh, came to be important, and the um, you know the methodological thing that comes out, you know, or the um, uh, historical point I want I wanted to make in the article is that the methods, the, co- the cohort study that Framingham, you know, methodologically the cohort, the Framingham study is known as as one of the largest and maybe the earliest studies of. Um, of a cohort of people based on exposure to risk that follows people prospectively in time before they develop a disease. I mean, that's, that's its sort of methodological um, niche uh, mm-hmm. that, that in epidemiology 101 or something, but that, that didn't like, that wasn't planned out that evolved in response to trying to make sense of this epidemic of heart disease in a free living population. Mm-hmm. And, and and the, and the investigators kind of backed into this uh, um, without much, you know, they were speaking prose without knowing it. You know, they didn't understand that they were doing and they weren't. They were actually clinicians who were very much interested in producing a clinically usable set of information. You know, they hadn't, you know, all all research has a, has a market and an audience. And, and they, you know, and again, without... Uh, you know, without being STS type people, the, the Ray Dorber and, and, and William Cannell and those people kind of understood that, you know, they had a job. They were clinicians and they wanted to find things that you could do in the course of a normal clinical examination that would lead to interventions that doctors like to do. You know, doctors don't like to advise people, uh, at least they didn't used to. You know, this is this is one of the things the Framingham study helped catalyze. This was an era where doctors wanted to treat disease, not give lifestyle uh, advice. Right, and they right. Were, not and they not were, treating health or prescribing health. Yeah, and right. there was a d- deep suspicion of public health among private practitioners mm-hmm. uh, who felt, you know, public health was always encroaching on fee-for-service private practice. Um, and in some sense, American public health, uh, you know, to understand its history and what it is, it's those things that fee-for-service private practitioners don't want to do. <laughs> that, which is why, like the clinical treatment of sexually transmitted diseases, is a public health issue, you know, mm-hmm. what, and not a and and not uh, an element of, of of clinical medicine so much in its in its historical evolution. Anyway, these 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 this is a study of that was you know by its very origin wanted to find some kind of prevention that didn't involve you know rooting out the social determinant what we today would call the social determinants of of health and disease, how poverty, poor schooling, um, uh, stress and family structure, you know, 
whatever evolves into disease that a doctor can't do anything about or doesn't want to do anything about or doesn't think of their job. So, you know, there's a kind of circularity here to the ultimate evolution of what risk factors were is that it had its origin in something that would be amenable to clinical practice. Mm -hmm. So what's both innovative about the Framingham study was nudging and expanding in a very gradual and, and modest way the reach and focus of, of clinical medicine to include a certain part of prevention and uh, intervention in, 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 in anticipatory treatment that would still feel like clinical medicine. So it's not, it, it's not a surprise that risk factors took the form of uh, levels of serum cholesterol or blood pressure as me- measured by a sphingometer, uh, not, or, or smoking and tobacco, but, but in the form of number of pack years of tobacco smoke in the course of a lifetime, mm-hmm. not the role of Southern politicians crafting tax subsidies for tobacco production, <laughs> you know, leading or, or the role of advertising or, you know, what Alan Brandt describes in the cigarette century, all the consumer forces that unleashed the cigarette made it a mass market product. Those things are not risk factors. That's for like, that's the job of a historian or a social epidemiologist or a do good Nick left wing politician to deal with. <laughs> You know, risk factors took the form of things that were individually manifested in physiology that in, moreover could be manipulated by med- and identified by medical means. Right. And I remember so, from reading your uh, yeah. from reading that chapter, actually, yeah. one of the, I think it was the leader of the study was very hesitant to have an epidemiologist or anyone officially trained right. in epidemiology brought into the study, which is fascinating. Yeah. I, you know, any, actually, the, the issue was a social science. You know, uh, people. um uh, you know, people down in NIH Central thought like these guys were kind of mavericks. And, you know, what were they doing? They took 10 years to publish a result, uh, actually, uh, and, uh, you know, and sucking up a lot of money and resources. And, you know, they thought, you know, they don't have a clue about how to do a community study. That's the province of social scientists, mm. you know, sociologists, anthropologists, epidemiologists, too. But they knew what they were doing. <laughs> they were aiming for, and, and they wanted to find uh, clinically significant and statistically significant results of a few factors that a physician could deal with. Um, and that's, you know, both instantiates and sets the course for the future. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you, you know, you reap what you sow uh, and uh, sow what you reap. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had in mind, you know, in this clinician in practice and the medicalized aspect of our disease prevention that followed that seems like just the only option. Mm-hmm. Um, is in sense, you know, it is determined, maybe even overly determined by mm-hmm. a whole set of things outside the mindset of the Framingham investigators, but nevertheless, it's not the only universe we could inhabit. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, you know, one of my students, uh, Sachel Patel, wrote a very brilliant thesis on a competing study that was going on that looked at the town of Rosetto, Pennsylvania, where supposedly uh, – there were a lot of fat and happy Italian Americans who didn't die of heart disease, <laughs> uh, uh, and tried to understand what happened at the level of a population, at the level of a community, in terms of social cohesion and other factors. They didn't use those words, but they right. were trying to understand what was what was in the community that might predict protection from heart disease. And by the way, the risk factors are all about disease, not protection. Right. Uh, but, right. That's and, another, they're, and they're all about individuals being placed in yes, categories, right? Because right, I think right. that's another interesting tension yep. that runs throughout the book is this right. uh, le- leveraging the individual against population knowledge right. and what a physician is meant to do when consulted. Right. right. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, many historians have, you know, Chris Hamlin, you know, in his kind of brilliant work about Chadwick and reformers in the, in the, in the early 19th century, mid 19th century Britain, you know, faced a similar set of issues around looking at sort of the role of the political economy in causing problems, or was it sewers? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Was the issue, you know, malnutrition, uh, um, or was it, you know, uh, the state of the poor law, poor laws, you know? And so, you know, there's a, this, you know, the issue of population versus individual social determinants, political economy versus focusing on the individual, you know, it's, it's been in the history of public health and medicine for a long period of time, but which gets back to that periodization problem that started this, you know, you asked me in the beginning, but I think it's a very particular re redirection or, you know, realignment or recommitment to the individual that happens with, um, you know, epidemiologically, by the way, you know, chronic disease obviously becomes much more important than infectious disease, though, of course, infectious disease remains important to us, uh, you know, acute infectious disease. And so, you know, it, 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 you know, it's not surprising that there's a lot of interest in thinking about what to do about preventing and managing coronary heart disease. It's a lead, you know, Eisenhower has a, uh, you know, a heart attack while in office. Uh, you know, this is, this is an era where uh, there's a lot of cultural interest and visibility to heart disease and, and chronic disease. So in some sense, you know, the, the individual, you know, the, the, the framing studies is, is, is determined by a lot of factors um, that, that are going on, but it is a, it is a, ter- a recommitment to thinking about thinking about medicine, medicine as an institution, as focused on the individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so kind of drawing on that question and some of these uh, transformations, I wanted to move into your case studies because yeah. I'm interested particularly in why uh, you chose each one of them. And I also right. just want to make a point quickly before proceeding that. Uh, one of the ways, and you know, I was sort of in rereading this, trying to trace, you know, what actually is risky medicine, how does it get instantiated? And one of the things you bring up is that um, this kind of weird duality, wherein sometimes in risky medicine, um, the risks of interventions or the desire to intervene more in conditions where we wouldn't do so prior can lead to more and more risks. And then on the other hand, there's what you've been calling kind of this, um, you know, lived experience or um, the converged experience of risk and disease, like risk comes to stand in for more. And so I guess I'm wondering in going through each of these case studies, uh, Gardasil, Lyme disease, and also cancer survivorship, the three yeah. uh, big ones, how, you know, where these kind of fall on the spectrum of like how you'd characterize the influence of risk. So let's start with Gardasil. Okay. Well, um, you know, I, I gave you a little preview earlier. Right, right. Based on, based on uh, other work, but I think it's a, a classic example of uh, the invention, the production, the social construction. I don't know. There's many ways you can, you can sort of, um, uh, you know, describe the phenomena, but the creation of a kind of risk state mm. through, you know, the kind of what, what, you know, STS terms would be the co-production. You know, you have both an intervention and the target of the intervention both created simultaneously, each reinforcing each other. So the risk state here is a state of HPV infection. You know, um, it's only, you know, a relatively recent 60, 70 development, of, you know, a, uh, you know, Nobel Prize was awarded for the connection between this viral infection, HPV and, and cervical cancer and, and other cancers. Um, and um, nevertheless, you know, to the great majority of people, uh, 
you know, even, you know, physicians in practice like I was in the 80s and 90s, HPV was a kind of minor story or, you know, no one knew what to do about it. I, I remember uh, pre-Gardasil, pre pre-HPV vaccines, um, teaching at Penn undergraduates and having young women come to my office uh, just when the HPV test was sometimes added to pap screening. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're crying on the couch in my office telling me that they just went to see a doctor who told them they have a sexually transmitted disease, HPV, which um, can be transmitted uh, even when you have a, con- a condom on. It can be just done from bodily contact, that it can cause cancer, you know, not just an ugly sore or even infectious disease. There's no cure for it, uh, no treatment for it. Uh, and you can imagine how horribly stigmatized and scary and, and, you know, and no one knew what these probabilities were, whether we're talking about something minor and, and people at the, early on couldn't distinguish HPV strains that were had low probabilities of leading to cancer or other things. So, uh, never, you know, I, I'm creating the situation saying that that, that, that woman in my or young Penn student who was on the couch in my office was never, not, nevertheless kind of invisible, kind of like breast cancer in the early 19th century. It, when, if you were affected, you, you knew all about it. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't culturally out there, you know, and people just didn't know what it was. So the people who created the vaccine had a problem, which was to create a market, at a, you know, like I said, a target for this, for this uh, vaccine. And um, I argue in the book, and I use a lot of advertising and marketing material to make the point, but also I, some lived experience in some ways, that um, what... Uh, Merck, for example, the makers of Gardasil, one of the two vaccines licensed in in the U.S., uh, did in a lot of its marketing was to, you know, I guess, you know, in in their minds, they were creating awareness of of a problem. Mm -hmm. But if you look, you know, even superficially at what they were actually saying and doing, it was clear that they were appealing that the efficacy of Gardasil was not only or not even or hardly even you know, hardly even mentioned that the word cancer in some of these things was not to reduce the small probability of uh, of people getting um, cervical cancer. You know, it's real enough if you if you develop it, but it's you know two or three thousand women a year in the U.S. die of cervical cancer. But everyone, uh, every young woman, every young man, for that matter, was possibly going to develop transient HPV infection. Mm-hmm. And if they um, developed it, they might end up, um, you know, I I talk a lot about a, and I show in classes, a particular Merck advertisement uh, that's still on the web, I think, a a, a series of HPV true stories. And one of them has a woman sitting there, uh, you know, it looks like she just made like a little homemade YouTube, but it's like, you know, probably a million dollar um, very well-crafted presentation <laughs> right. where she describes that she's got HPV and uh, every six months she goes for a pap smear and uh, it comes back uh, still positive, but she's healthy. She doesn't have cancer. And then she looks at the camera at the end of this and she tells people, but you know, uh, in a very sort of mournful, soulful way, that don't be like her, get tested, do what you can to stay healthy. Uh, and basically the message of the advertisement, uh, it's not an advertisement, it's actually just kind of an infomercial, um, is don't end up like her <laughs> in this stigmatized state of neither healthy or diseased, 
with a constant need for surveillance and a life filled with worry about what's going to happen next. And what I mean by the, the risk state, you know, this, this sort of uh, that and the efficacy of, of, of risk interventions to, to control it is that the vaccine promises everyone not to be like that woman in the advertisement. Mm-hmm. And so the H, the Gardasil, the HPV stories is really a, a very, in one, at one level, a very strong example of the um, construction, you know, the, of an embodied risk state where it involves work and involves concern and worry and, and, and you know, and literally is in, like in the body doing something, you know, in the form of a, a viral infection that can be tested using, um, you know, modern DNA uh, technology. So, um, you know, I really wanted to emphasize that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, most of all. But then, you know, there are other elements, like I said, that how uh, there's, a, you know, it's a straightforward case in some ways of path dependency in the history of technology, where, you know, the product itself uh, has a lot of arbitrary features, like the QWERTY keyboard or something. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not arbitrary or in the sense of being completely up for chance. They're arbitrary in the sense that they were developed, like I said, for a particular market, a particular time, a, a world in which there are other ways of preventing cervical cancer, where it's not a big killer. So the vaccine literally, you know, they could have made in the initial vaccine, they could have included or experimented with including many different, many different types of HPV that lead to cancer. Instead, they picked the two most prominent ones that people estimate in the Western countries. Nobody knows in the places where cancer really matters, right? Uh, where they happen. But in, in, in the U S for example, these, uh, you know, to use the, you know, the epidemiological, uh, term of art, you know, these things are associated, you know, though there's pretty good evidence for causality with, with cervical cancer, they only included these two. And so uh, this is a very like limited efficacy from a kind of preventing cancer perspective of these, but, but it makes sense as, cause this is meant to be a kind of an, a, a, you know, something that's going to prevent you from feeling um, uh, uh, stigmatized and, you know, and, and, you know, and violated by never, never having to have an HPV risk. Moreover, at the aggregate level, at the economic level, when the vaccine, and this is where it getting to a point you made in the introduction to your question, uh, you know, one of the, the actual cost effectiveness of the HPV vaccine in Western countries is uh, only minimally about preventing cancer. Like I said, cancer, you know, it's, it's only going to have a limited effect. 70% of new cases of cancer will be prevented. And there's a certain cost attached to years of life saved that economists will tell you that they can compute and, and, and put, you know, put it, put in a, in a, in a cost effectiveness analysis. However, uh, um, the U.S. today, three million women a year are diagnosed with something called um, atypical squamous cells of uncertain significance. Now, that sounds like a mouthful and something confusing. It is, especially if you've been diagnosed with it. It means funny-looking things. We don't know what's going to happen. Now, those things not only cost money to you know to find, but they lead to all kinds of concern and worry. The you know embodied risk states, but they also lead to more evaluations and right. un- and and the. It's estimated, you know, that like, you know, that, you know, you know, know, the real cost effectiveness of the vaccine is reducing the noise of the system by reducing the number of abnormal pap smears that get this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And again, my Martian, you know, arriving in Western societies might say, what kind of world do you have where you increasingly devise new products that reduce the costs and harms of other products that you have? (laughs) You know, aren't you concerned about like people living longer and 
you know, and, and, you know, stuff that makes people feel better, you know, this, this is where the risk, you know, efficacy problem, problem comes in again too. Right. So, and then a third part of the role of that chapter is to, is to serve as a kind of, um, um, pre, you know, a prelude to the globalized risk thing that we, we talked about earlier, which I, which I included in another chapter, chapter, because not just HPV vaccines, but a whole, when you follow the story of cervical cancer interventions globally, a lot of disturbing things come up. Mm-hmm. Like so anyway, that. That, that, those are some of the things I try to use the uh, Gardasil example for. Yeah, I like that. The when, uh, you know, a kind of disease category that ends with of uncertain significance <laughs> becomes yes. extremely, extremely popular as a result of this, um, you know, kind of risky medicine. So on that note of yeah. uh, things of uncertain significance, we yeah. then go to the next chapter, which is on Lyme disease, in which yes. you have an, it's sort of you invert the uh, kind of set of actors and that you're largely looking at the uh, activity of people who have like experienced and suffered from Lyme disease, who right. see Lyme disease as the cause of all, you know, other kinds of comorbidities and whatnot, and them sort yeah. of butting heads with the medical community and trying to get, you know, action against uh, Lyme disease. So I'd love if you could unpack how they argued for the significance of their condition. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of fascinating story that uh, unfortunately is of not terrible interest to the world. I mean, it, a lot of people in the Lyme disease um, medical community, uh, especially public health officials and CDC, are remain very committed to developing a vaccine against Lyme disease and, um, uh, and, and are, are perplexed and pulling their hair out over the story that I tell in the chapter because from their perspective, a safe and effective product, a Lyme disease vaccine, was marketed. And then because of things that they don't have a language to understand, it sort of ran into trouble mm-hmm. uh, and um, lawsuits, bad publicity, um, you know, and uh, and failed. But but when you look more closely, or when somebody like me looks more closely with the perspective of of of, of um, vaccines as risk reducing products, which is of course interesting at some level. I, I didn't mention that in the Gardasil thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, at least I didn't I didn't use those terms. At some level, Gardasil is a kind of you know, um, biomedically, it fits the description of a vaccine that is it induces an immune response that protects you, uh, which is what vaccines are supposed to do. But the, but the whole concept of vaccine really is much more complicated than that with lots of different types of meanings. Mm. And um, in many ways, the vaccine Gardasil is like cholesterol-lowering drug or a screening test. It's selling itself as a kind of risk-reducing product. So anyway, getting to the Lyme disease vaccine, which nobody thinks of in these terms, I try to argue, uh, does have these uh, risk-reducing qualities. And in particular, uh, the vaccine is a story, and this gets to, you're right, this is a di- there's a different set of actors here. It's the, uh, you know, large, heterodox, you know, to use a term of art for a moment, you know, group of people who uh, are on the outs with the medical establishment, who believe they are suffering from chronic Lyme disease, which many experts believe doesn't exist or hardly exists uh, in a way. And there's incredibly, and this is a very strange, fractured, and sometimes scary world where there's such antagonism between the uh, more orthodox, you know, both clinicians who treat Lyme disease and researchers who create, who get NIH grants to uh, do research. There's such fraught relations generally 
and it's been going on since the very beginning of Lyme disease, between themselves and this heterodox community where they live in uh, kind of like, um, you know, when I was a kid, there was Superman and there was also a couple of issues of something where Bizarro World, where Superman's the evil guy and, um, you know, everything is reversed. It's really like a Bizarro World uh, <laughs> where everything is inverted and um, the Lyme disease vaccine finds itself hostage uh, you know, or it's, you know, the uh, independent variable you know, that's shaped by all this pre-existing controversy over the legitimacy of, of Lyme disease. And, you know, I don't want to tell the whole story on, you know, on this podcast. It'll take too long. But, you know, uh, in the beginning, there's enthusiasm for this vaccine on the part of most everyone, the heterodox and orthodox community. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's almost predetermined that, uh, they can't agree because their their terms of reference, you know, these are oppositional things that feed on each other. In fact, there is no, there's no, uh, you know, the, the meaning of every of, of a lot of the heterodox action is to be against what the Lyme disease uh, experts are promoting, and in in different ways, the um, the efficacy of this vaccine, as perceived by the orthodox community, to um, reduce the noise in the system. In, in some sense, this was a vaccine that was partially motivated to end the controversy by preventing Lyme disease from happening, but also proving the, in some sense, the target of the vaccine, which was the, the orthodox definition of the disease, that that was a kind of more meaningful and right one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this became, a, 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 you know, not, a, not surprisingly, a bone of tremendous contention mm. to the Lyme disease community. And moreover, there was a kind of um, alternative construction of the biology and the pathophysiology of this, of this heterodox chronic Lyme disease that was built on notions of immune reaction. And, you know, vaccines have a long history of being controversial, right. uh, but this was controversial for ways di- very different from the autism, MMR connection, whatever. It was, it was um, uh, you know, a community basically saying, we think the vaccine not only isn't effective, but in some sense causes Lyme disease because we think chronic Lyme or chronic Lyme disease because chronic Lyme disease is an immunological is partly an immunological re- reaction to Lyme and Lyme disease infection or infection with Borrelia burgdorferi. So there was this kind of bizarre alternative construction. But uh, to, to connect it to the rest of the book, I think you know one way to think about it is that the promoters of the vaccine, whether they're bio, the clini- clinician investigators or the people who did the laboratory and entomological work, and it, and it was brilliant. This vaccine is, you know, ingenious. It actually doesn't produce immunity. It doesn't work the way a typical vaccine does. It kills the spirochete in the tick's gut mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because the, all the passive immunity, the small numbers of circulating antibodies in somebody who's been immunized get, in, get into the blood meal, and while it's sitting in the, in the tick, destroys the um, spirochete. You know, it's brilliant. You know, if this story is true. Anyway, the um, the various people who promoted and investigated this vaccine didn't understand what was at stake, what the actual efficacy of this vaccine was, or what the different meanings of efficacy could be to the community it was largely um, going to be dependent on. And, you know, this being, you know, part of that first thing I told you about the expansion of risk, uh, the makers of the vaccine understood that in some sense, Lyme disease is not a deadly disease. There's other ways to prevent it. And even though it's the leading tick-borne infection, the numbers are not that great in a way. But they thought they could get a risk-reducing product that 
you know, in the world of people afraid of Lyme disease, that's in the millions. That's people living in suburban America, suburban America in the Northeast and the Midwest, at least. Mm. And um, they expected to capitalize on the fear and desire for control that large numbers of people would have, even though there are other ways to prevent it and the, and the disease is treatable and, um, and the vaccine is only imperfect. And they didn't realize that this could boomerang in a way, because um, if people feared the vaccine and felt the vaccine had very similar products of, uh, that the disease had of making people feel like that they you know, had an immunological process now that, that would cause harm to themselves and work in mysterious ways, that, the, you, know, the, you know, in a sense, this was like a complete flip of the switch. Something that was meant to control and reduce fear could, in fact, cause fear. Right. The stigma this, of autoimmunity, right? Right. The stigma yeah. of autoimmunity. And this, this is something that's very characteristic of so many risk-reducing interventions. That is, I, I think I use the term easy come, easy go. <laughs> that is, when they're marketed and constructed and, uh, and imagined to work on these psychological and social efficacy grounds of reducing fear and restoring a sense of control, then all, all one has to do is show that the thing itself, the product itself, the intervention itself, has a capacity to like have some harms associated with it. That it, it, it you know that it, it, you know quickly comes market seller to market failure, and this is repeated in Vioxx and a whole series of, of products that you know are often sold as being safer than the next product. <laughs> uh, you know that all you have to do is identify. I'm, I'm you know I'm giving agencies if someone was trying to unnerve them. In the, in the Lyme disease case, I think that was actually the case. But in a lot of these products, it's just discovered, in, you know, as things go, in epidemiological surveys, that things carry risks. Things carry probabilities of bad things happening. And when you have a very marginal objective benefit, and what's largely being sold to people is a sense that it's safer than the next product, or it's going to give you some control over something, that's undermined very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so on this issue of control... I, yeah. As much as I want to be able to get into the next chapter on cancer survivorship and the following chapter on global yeah. pharmaceuticals, it looks like we're kind of running out of time. So I wanted yeah. to kind of bring things back to uh, uh -huh. some of the stories of individuals that you bring up in the book right. and sort of okay. what – uh, what individual actors in the American healthcare system are sort of what? What do we do about this state of risky medicine? How do people best navigate? Should patients advocate more for rights? Can that be taken to uh, to too much of an extreme? To what extent are we kind of just complicit in establishing the system by you know being subject to it essentially? Right. Well, you know, uh, it's going to be very difficult to get the genie back in the bottle. <laughs> and you know, I while I do have a point of view. And I do think things can be done. I just want to sort of preface any remarks I make where, you know, just like the history itself is sort of, of the Framingham study of various developments I talk is overdetermined. We're not going to reverse the engines of capitalism. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we're not going to create people who are not afraid of dying, you know, who uh, have no fear of disease. We're not going to stop. Bio <laughs> we're, we're not going to stop biomedical research from discovering earlier and earlier stages of you know, the natural history of disease, which become opportunities for risk interventions at the same moment, in a way. These things are kind of out there uh, at some level. There are ways in which I think thoughtful, um, you know, policy and clinical responses, uh, you know, are possible uh, in a way. And, you know, one of the things I'm, you know, I guess I'll start with the most obvious in a way is that um, risk, um, because of the psychological and social efficacy of a lot of risk reduction, uh, things. I think we need a very, very 
high standard of evidence before stuff is marketed and, mm. you know, put into the water. Stuff meaning screening tests, risk-reducing interventions, whatever. Now, you know, the reality, and this is not understood by medical historians or even policymakers, the reality of innovation and change in medicine doesn't happen in, I think, you know, I'm, I don't want to be quantitative here, but a lot of it doesn't happen in explicit research projects that have like IRB reviews and, you know, follow the classic, you know, four stages of pharmaceutical regulation. A lot of stuff happens in practice. Right. You know, there's a, you know, I'm very interested now in a new project on, on, on explaining that this blurred boundary between, between research and practice. Tinkering happens, you know, to use a kind of a more STS term in a way. That's happening all the time. Innovation change where things are going on. And the story of a lot of these risk interventions follows that script exactly in a way. Uh, one thing I don't talk about a lot, but I've done in some other publications, is the history of prostate cancer screening, and in particular the PSA test. And this evolved that clinical practice where people knew or, or you know, tinkered with, and they were searching for different kinds of blood tests that would give them an early clue into where prostate cancer develops. And without a whole lot of thought, it was like tried, and, and it coalesced with a lot of other technologies like um, ultrasounds of prostate glands and new, new supposedly safer surgery, and it coalesced into kind of a paradigm of doing something, f- using PSA tests to find early cancer, and then doing radical surgery. And this was done in a very evidence-free way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until almost two decades after uh, PSA screening and, and radical surgery following it and, 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 uh, and radiation became like the, the reality for millions, tens of millions of American men and this is also a global phenomenon, it was only after two decades of this that the results of a clinical trial were ever released, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, in a way. And you have to put yourselves in the position of a lot of clinicians and patients that were saying, how could there be something wrong with just information? How could there be something um, problematic with getting cancer in the body out of you (laughs) before it kills you? Mm -hmm. So the book is an argument to say, well, there could be a lot wrong with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With almost every aspect of what everything I just said, uh, in some level. But to, to, I know we're running out of time, so I'll be I'll be quicker here. But you know, the one implication here is not for everything, but for practices, for interventions that are risk reducing. That is this potential for what I call in the book autocatalytic change. You know, rapidly diffusing and feeding on itself to spread throughout the whole society long before there's any evidence of objective. Um, savings lives or and, and, and at, a, at a cost that are acceptable, costs, I don't mean money costs, I mean at cost to people's other aspects of their health. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we need, we need very high standards. Mm-hmm. Now, another aspect of this is, you know, and you asked about individuals and agency, is that um, we willy-nilly uh, produce a lot of risk research um, without thinking about its long-term consequences down the line. And I'm not a Luddite. I don't think we should, like, turn the spigots off on, 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 you know, disinterested research, but a lot of research is not disinterested. A lot of funding gets directed toward finding earlier and earlier states of disease and risk factors and whatever. And I, and I think it's done in a way that it, without a whole lot of thought to the downsides of it, that are not calculated in the, in the, in the policy decisions to divert resources in this direction. And I think, you know, we need some more so- sobriety there as well. Mm-hmm. I, I'm getting a sense we're running out of time, so I don't want to, there's a lot of other things. I mean, I, I'm, interested at the individual level in a sense i think our clinical we've gotten a little bit carried away with prevention uh and um for for a lot of humanistic reasons have have you know been very interested in treating the individual and not the disease 
Mm -hmm. uh, in a way. And I think that's, you know, it's almost a humanistic credo reversing the Paris credo of the early 19th century. But I think, you know, there's a certain rebalancing of that. And that, that sounds very abstract, but I think it has a lot of very tangible and practical aspects where um, uh, in clinical training and education and in consumer behavior, there, there needs to be some greater attention to, you know, symptomatic disease and alleviating of suffering and care for that matter. Um, and, um, maybe a little less concern in, 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 with uh, prevention in this risk, in this individualized risk way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and there's, you know, points I make in the book about social determinants and um, sort of, so like I said, some of the more Foucaultian aspects of, of, um, of the surveillance regime that follows upon risk that also concern me that I think we have some agency to do something about as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And on the issue of, uh, things that also concern you, uh, we like to wrap things up by asking, what are you working on currently? Yeah. So I have a, you know, again, everything bleeds into one another. You know, the, a lot of this book was concerned with the question of efficacy and, uh, but I'd like to, I, I'm working on a, a book length project, similar organization, case studies and theoretical chapters that's focused on the problem of, of efficacy more generally in American and Western medicine. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the things that really animates me is we, um, you know, we have so many interventions that that have, in some sense, exacerbated the problem of idiosyncrasy and the problem of the ontology of disease uh, uh, that, you know, this brings, you know, more theoretical issues in the history of medicine and science into practical focus mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a way. Because there's always been tension about, you know, disease as an ontological stable category. And what does that mean? Does it dissolve into individual things or not? And I'd like to bring this into policy and clinical relevance. Mm-hmm. That's With, yeah, so that's that's what I'm obsessing about at the moment. Great. Well, Robbie, thanks so much for your time. And uh, to listeners out there, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out uh, Risky Medicine. And uh, thanks. Good night.